thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, hello, everybody. Great to have you with me today for this new episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I want to welcome all those who have begun to listen to our podcast through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And let me encourage all of you who may not already be partnered with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network or familiar with it to, to check it out. The number of great podcasts on there that I listen to, any number of them are helpful to me. And I just listen while I'm driving in the car and, and get a lot from them. And um, I hope today will be a real blessing to you, but also helpful to you in better understanding the common law and the relationship between the common law and the Constitution and the job of the justices on the United States Supreme Court when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. So much has been done wrong for so long, and so much about the common law, its nature, its purpose, its relation to the Constitution, have been forgotten that in some ways, my friends, we're starting all over again. That's why I've entitled this series about restoring the ruins, rebuilding. This is why I did a series before uh, this series on escaping futility. Because you see, if we just keep doing law, the Constitution, Supreme Court arguments, the way we've been doing, it will be futile. When you, when you base your law on the wrong foundation, you will come out in the wrong place. For those of you who've listened to me for the last several months, know in the Escaping Futility podcast series, I focused on the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul says, there is only one foundation for everything, the one that has been laid in Jesus Christ. And we talked about why Jesus Christ was, in fact, the foundation for everything because he is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the firstborn of all creation. The idea was that because the Father can communicate the fullness of God in an absolute sense to the Son and has been eternally communicating that, then he is able to communicate aspects of God to the creation. God is communicative. He is eternally communicating. And, and of course, within the Godhead, there would be a communication a language, you might say, in the words of Herman Bavnik, that, that we wouldn't understand a heavenly kind of language, but, but there was always communication within the triune personal God. Now, what I want to get into today is picking up from where we were last week. We were talking about that the common law, which is this understanding that there is a law that precedes any positive actions by mankind, whether it's through a judicial ruling by a judge saying, oh, well, let's see here. You promised to pay money if somebody would deliver you 10 widgets, and they delivered you 10 widgets, so you have to pay. That's a contract. That's how common law would have worked. It wouldn't have had to have been a license to, to buy and sell widgets. 
people just entered into agreements, right? And then we realized that justice required those agreements be enforced or we would have theft. Okay, that's how the common law worked. And, and the judge would discern that transcendent principles about theft and promises and enforce them. And that was what common law was doing, okay? And common law said there, there's a point at which throughout time and history, over the course of our traditions and experiences, we come to see this as law, having the force of law because of our tradition and custom that you can't promise to pay something in exchange for something and not keep your promise. Then we discuss the fact that statutes were actually intended to either codify the common law for the sake of clarifying the common law or in the words of Blackstone and even the United States Supreme Court, remedy defects in the common law. So you'll recall last week we talked about the fact that trying to prove one is married 30 years after you exchanged your promise, maybe you've moved around the country, was hard. So the Supreme Court said, well, the statutes were intended to correct a defect in the common law, namely the difficulty of proving you're married after large lapses of time and perhaps moving around the country. So you could substitute dragging in the preacher or the witnesses to um, just in, provide a copy of the license, and unless there was some evidence to the contrary, then the license was the evidence that you were married. So that leads now into uh, the statement I made last week that Clarence Thomas wrote in the Second Amendment case decided right before the Dobbs decision, which interpreted the Second Amendment. And he noted that the Second Amendment simply codified what the common law already was. In other words, it was doing exactly what I said, making clear to everybody what the common law was. Now, this then creates a bit of a challenge because how do we now understand that codified common law? Now, it's codified, so it is law. It can't just be ignored. But how do we now understand this notion, for example, of the right to keep and bear arms in light of the fact that somebody today could go buy a bazooka or a rocket launcher. Now, what Clarence Thomas was saying is that throughout history, this would be the idea of the common law, people used to carry around slingshots like King David, right? Uh, and then they moved on to maybe knives and swords and then lances and, well, I doubt you'd carry around a lance, but, um, you know, other means of defending yourself. And so the common law didn't didn't specify necessarily what the weapon must be, but the principle of keeping something on your body to protect yourself, to defend your life, to protect your body from being maimed and harmed. Well, that principle became a part of our history and tradition that, that this is just right. It is, it is just for a person to be able to defend themselves. And so it got codified into the Second Amendment. But now the question is, they use this general term, they keep and bear arms. Now how does this apply when we have semi-automatic weapons, which we didn't have at the time the Bill of Rights was ratified? But how does it apply to, you know, the person having a bazooka? Now this is where it gets really important to understand how to think about 
common law. Okay, now here is the objection that we heard from the dissenting justices in this Second Amendment case that we've been talking about. Now I'm quoting Clarence Thomas and his statement about the dissent's argument. The dissent claims that Heller's text and history test. Okay, so so what Clarence Thomas was doing, he was looking at the text of the Second Amendment that says you, you have the right to keep and bear arms. And then he's saying, what is the history behind that text? The dissent is saying, well, that's going to prove unworkable compared to a means-end scrutiny in the part of judges. Now, let me explain means-end scrutiny, and I'm going to repeat the whole sentence for you, so don't worry if this is getting a little convoluted. But means-end was simply the idea that, well, we look at the means that are being used, the bazooka, and we're looking at the end, which is to uh, protect your body. Uh, you don't really need a bazooka to protect your body, to defend your life, okay? So the court's going to weigh uh, the various means by which you could protect your body against the societal harms of people having bazookas and so on and so forth, and then we'll decide that this law prohibiting bazookas is or is not constitutional. Okay, so I hope that makes sense. So let me now read the sentence again. This is again Clarence Thomas. The dissent claims that Heller's text and history test will prove unworkable compared to means-end scrutiny. Now, the problem with this idea is means-end kind of scrutiny is what legislatures do. They're the ones that sit here and they're supposed to figure out well, golly, now we have bazookas. What should we do? Should we let people carry around bazookas on the public streets? Carry them into, you know, the city hall? Uh, and, and they would analyze this means of protecting yourself against the various ends and decide, you know, um, maybe you can have a bazooka at home in case the government comes to take you away, but you ought not be carrying it around on the street. See, that's, that's what I'm saying legislatures would do. They would maybe correct defects in the common law to the extent anybody thought it allowed you to carry a bazooka around on the street, and, and that's what they would do. So, so the dissent is saying we need to act like a legislative body because this text in history thing is just going to prove unworkable, and here's why. This is important. Quote, because judges are relatively ill-equipped to resolve difficult historical questions or engage in searching historical surveys. Now, we have to appreciate that this whole interpretation of the Constitution involves an understanding of the nature of history, which is an understanding of the cosmos, which is an understanding of God. Does God exist or not? And who is this God if he exists? That's why, again, going back to what I said, if you don't understand the Trinity and Jesus Christ is the only foundation for all things, the only one that can be laid, and you don't grasp what all that entails and meditate and think upon it, you won't come up with the right view of history. 
And then you won't know how to interpret the Constitution. You won't know how to interpret the common law. Now, this is what Justice Thomas said in response to that argument, and there are two parts of it. I hope I can get to both of them today. Thomas says, The job of judges is not to resolve historical questions in the abstract. It is to resolve legal questions presented in particular cases or controversies. Now, that phrase, particular cases or controversy, is very important because those words come from the Constitution that limit the judicial power to resolving cases or controversies between parties in the courtroom. In other words, it is distinct from the legislative means-end kind of analysis, and it is to only enter a judgment to resolve a particular dispute, not to make law for everybody. And he's saying, and we don't resolve historical questions in the abstract. We're resolving them in the context of a particular legal issue. Is this law prohibiting the carrying of bazookas on public streets within or outside the scope of the right to keep and bear arms? That's a particular legal question. I'm not deciding on, you know, abstractly about bazookas and those kinds of things. I'm deciding a legal question about a particular law involving a particular thing and what is its relationship to history. Now, we're going to come back to this relationship to history in a minute, but I want to finish this point that Thomas makes about we're resolving legal questions because this is so important because most people think the Supreme Court makes the law of the land, that when they resolve a legal question between two particular people, that's the law of the land. And that is not true. That's not what they're doing. That is not the nature of their power. It is limited to a particular case or controversy in front of the judge. Every time you see a headline that says, Supreme Court makes same-sex marriage the law of the land, you know that person doesn't know what they're talking about, or else they're using some kind of shorthand that is actually inaccurate. Now, let me continue with what he says. That legal inquiry is a refined subset of a broader historical inquiry. What's he saying? I'm not here to decide what all weapons of the past have an analogy to the present. I'm just deciding this subset of weapons that we have today called bazookas in the context of what we understood to be necessary to keep and bear arms. That's the historical inquiry. And he says it relies on various evidentiary principles and default rules to resolve uncertainties. Now, I don't want to get into all of that too much, but I will say this because it's his next sentence, and this gives a demonstration of what he's saying. Thomas continues, For example, in our adversarial system of adjudication, we follow the principle of party presentation. See, I'm only deciding a question between parties, not a question between the world and the Constitution. And then he says this, it's so important. Courts are thus entitled to decide a case based on the historical record compiled by the parties. Because I'm not making law for the whole United States and just deciding this issue between Bob who wants to carry around a bazooka and uh, the city of New York that says you can't carry bazookas on the street. I'm just going to look at the historical record that's put into the case by the parties. Now, why this is so important is that, for example, the parties may not do a good job of giving the whole historical record. <laughs> okay? So another guy says, you know, I think the Supreme Court decided this wrong. I do have a right to carry around a bazooka with me on the streets. 
And they didn't give a very good historical record because I have proof in the history that around the time of the framing of the Constitution, people were allowed to drag catapults along the streets with them. Now, obviously, that's facetious. But you could see perhaps the analogy between a catapult and a bazooka. And if I could now show the historical record uh, of people dragging around catapults, you know, well, uh, maybe that's sort of like a bazooka, modern-day equivalent. So, well, I guess the framers intended you to be able to drag along a bazooka with you. Might be a terrible idea, and we can amend the Constitution, but our job isn't to amend the Constitution. Okay, so I hope you see. The historical record is very important, and the historical record can be improved from one case to the next, and then the Supreme Court can reverse its decision, and it's not remaking the law of the land because it never made the law of the land in the first place. It just resolved the dispute between Bob and the city of New York over bazookas. And now Fred has come along and sued and brought in evidence that people dragged along catapults with them, and now the Supreme Court can say, well, I, I think we got that wrong. We now have a better historical record because the parties have, have reviewed our previous decision and somebody went, oh man, why didn't Bob put in this historical record of people dragging along catapults with them? I, I'm going to challenge this law again and put in this new record. See, that also begins to undermine this doctrine of stare decisis. That the court says, well, we decided this issue about abortion in 1973, so we just have to affirm there's a right to abortion in 1992. No, you can put in a better historical record than the one the court had, put in history that the court ignored, and lo and behold, in 2022, you issue an opinion in Dobbs and say they got the historical record wrong. And that's exactly what happened. I, I, hope, I hope this is making sense. But if not, send an email to info at factn.org. Info at factn.org. Tell me your question. Give me a few days to get back to you, but um, I'll try to make sure that I answer it. Now, I want to come to the last point here uh, about this particular aspect of Justice Thomas's opinion. And I've been hinting at it, in a sense, the, the whole time. And this is what he says about how courts think about bazookas, for example, versus muskets and handguns that might have existed, you know, at the time the Constitution and Bill of Rights was ratified versus catapults, is, you know, continuing my analogy. And that is the whole concept of analogical thinking. Here's what Clarence Thomas says. Quote, When confronting such present-day firearm regulations, this historical inquiry that courts must conduct will often involve reasoning by analogy, a commonplace task for any lawyer or judge. I want to come back to this idea of reasoning by analogy and a commonplace task for lawyers or judges to, to make it apply to all of us. But, but let me continue on while I'm at it. So he says, so therefore, quote, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense. So what is he saying? The right was one of self-defense. 
That's why we had the right to keep and bear arms. So what we're trying to discern is whether the modern regulation is comparable to or, or lacking continuity, let's say, to historical burdens. And then he says, and then the question is whether the burden that we now have is comparably justified. So, for example, there's no proof that people were dragging around catapults and a rocket launcher and a bazooka are much like catapults, so therefore a law prohibiting people from running around the streets with rocket launchers and bazookas is outside the comparable kinds of things that people were using and doing to defend themselves. Now this is now very important what he next says. Analogical reasoning requires only that the government identify a well-established and representative historical analog, not a historical twin. In other words, you're looking for analogies, not twins. Now this is important with respect to the kinds of arguments that were made in the Dobbs case about abortion. And Clarence Thomas is strengthening, in a sense, the Dobbs decision that was going to come out the next day. Because in the Dobbs decision, the dissent said, well, gosh, you're going to look back at the history of how the common law treated abortion as a crime. So you're saying that because abortion was treated as a crime, it can't be a right. Well, gosh, that means our cases saying that people have a right to contraception must go away because, well, contraception wasn't even known at the time. See, the dissent was wanting to look for twins. Did they have a contraceptive in 1780? Nine? Uh, well, no. Well, then I guess we can't have contraception now. That's not what I was saying at all. What the law about abortion was, was really, who's a person? And should the law protect persons and who constitute persons and who has a right to life? That's why we had abortion laws. That's the question that still needs to be resolved. But see, it wasn't historical twins regarding practices, but analogous concepts and reasoning from one kind of thing to the next. I hope that makes sense, but that's analogical reasoning. So, for example, if the common law had allowed abortion, then you could, by analogy, say, well, the common law would have allowed uh, the morning-after pill and RU-486. Does, does it, I hope that makes sense. So that's the kind of thinking that we're talking about. Now, let me say why this is so important. And I'm going to quote to you from Herman Bovink's um, volume two of his Reformed Dogmatics called uh, or entitled God and Creation. He makes this statement. And again, this goes to who God is and who we are that we are not gods, that God 
is distinct from his creation. His creation is not an emanation of God. There's no continuity between God and man, as in pantheism. And so, Bavink makes this statement, quote, Our knowledge of God is always only analogical in character. That is, shaped by analogy to what can be discerned of God in his creatures. And I would say, in creation, which is the whole idea, that creation is analogically revealing the attributes and the glory of God. In other words, if we can't think analogically, then we can't know God. So analogical thinking is not just something that is, is true, a commonplace task, as, as uh, Thomas put it, for any lawyer or judge. It's true for all of us. We engage in analogical thinking all the time. And for the Christian, if we can't know things by analogy, then we cannot know God. Now let me give you an example of that that I just read this morning as I was reading Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah writes this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Oh my goodness, then we can't know God, right? Because he's of a different order of being than we are. But then he says this, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Oh, wait a minute. Well, I'm, I'm beginning to understand what he means by, by this, uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts. There's such a, a gap here. Wow, there's such a gap here. But then he gives this great word. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Do you see? He's saying, Look, look how the, the, the water cycle works. That's how my word works. From me, through me, to me are all things. To God be the glory. Romans eleven thirty six. Think by analogy. I am bearing witness to you in the water cycle of the way my word works. Do you see the analogy? I mean, I, I don't know how else to end today's podcast but saying we ought to be able to read what Judge Thomas is saying and say, wow, he's bearing witness to the truth of the Word of God and who God is and who we are and how we think. And that's how we know God, to God be the glory. And I hope you'll join me next week as we continue on this subject. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.